welcome to episode 10 of Food Love, the space between terroir and the Tao of food. Today's guest is Jessica Plum, and I, I have to admit, I'm a fangirl. I watched her movie. Uh, she is the producer and director of Return of the River, uh, which is a story about the Elwha River, which is near and dear to me on the Olympic Peninsula. And she's a multi-talented, multi-creative. And this word that someone used with me recently, uh, polymath, is very much appropriate uh, for Jessica in her ability to synthesize important information about the environment, civic responsibility and discourse, political movements, interconnections between different peoples on the land of the Olympic Peninsula, and a a really astute uh, understanding of what it means to decolonize things uh, based on her studies in her MFA at Goddard College. I've been lucky enough to get to know her uh, through my time at Fort Warden Public Development Authority and the Lifelong Learning Center, which is comprised of 15 beautiful nonprofit organizations and creative enterprises. And I I just want to say thank you, Jessica, for being here today. And I would love for you to just sort of talk about your own experience in creating a vibrant portrait of this place um, through your focus on the Elwha River and all the different things that have kind of spun off from that for you. Well, thank you so much, Rufina. It's really a pleasure to be your guest today. And I too have been so grateful for the chance to get to know you through the different ways in which we've crossed paths here on the Olympic Peninsula. And with the Elwha River story, gosh, it's hard to know where to start. I think first I should say that as a filmmaker and storyteller, I have really devoted my work to better understanding the relationship between people and the places they call home between people and the land and waters that sustain us. And as I was looking around for a bigger project to take on around the time my daughter started kindergarten, it just happened to be at the moment when a remarkable story was unfolding here in our backyard on the Olympic Peninsula. And I had been following the story of the Elwha River and efforts to undam the river with a quiet passion for some time. But as it became clear that that movement was going to succeed, I had the feeling as a storyteller that I've only had in a few times in my life. You know, sometimes sometimes a narrative uh, can kind of pick you up like a kitten, you know, grab you by the back of the neck and just shake you. And <laughs> that is how I felt every time I learned more about the story mm-hmm. of the Elwha River. I felt someone has to document this remarkable Mm. story that is unfolding only, you know, about an hour and a half from where I live in Port Townsend, Washington. And Jessica, can can I pause for a second? Because I'm thinking about some of the listeners who are in the Midwest who really don't have a context for why is that story interesting about the removal of a dam? And I know you'll get to that, but for people who've not really experienced that, can you get them rooted in that idea? Why was it, why is that story, why was that a story causing you to, you know, be so energized? Absolutely. So the Elwha River is one of a collection of rivers that flows out of Olympic National Park here on the Olympic Peninsula. And 
like the rivers that are typical of this beautiful environment, it is a wild, short, steep river that flows to the sea out of snow-capped mountains here. And what was different about the Elwha is that it was dammed just over a hundred years ago with two dams, one only five miles from where it entered the sea at the Strait of the Juan de Fuca and the other upstream at Glines Canyon. Now the Elwha had been famous for years here on the Olympic Peninsula for its extraordinary salmon runs. And while there are many rivers that host remarkable salmon species, one of the things that made the Elwha unique is that all five species of salmon were present uh, mm -hmm. in the river. And mm -hmm. it was also known for exceptionally large Chinook salmon, which some people also call mm -hmm. king salmon. And this history is known in part from uh, the the long oral history of the Lower Elwha Column tribe and also from early settlers who came to the region in the 1800s. And when those dams were put up, they were put up without fish passage. And what that meant is that all of this beautiful habitat that was available to fish in the Olympic mountains and in the tributaries to the river then became completely cut off because the lower dam was built mm -hmm. without fish passage just five miles um, from the sea. Mm -hmm. From the moment that the dams were built, this created an environmental justice as well as uh, an ecosystem challenge story because the salmon runs had been of absolute vital importance to people who lived near the river, both members of the tribe and those who came later because that salmon was an incredible source of food and at the center of culture for people in this region. Mm. So... Mm -hmm. This is a story that unfolded over the course of a full century. And at the moment that I stepped in mm -hmm. with a camera, it was a remarkable and unusual moment in that the Elwha River dams uh, are still, as of now, the largest dams to be removed still on the planet, not only in the United States, but anywhere. Yeah. And the fight to remove them went on for decades and decades and decades, led by a whole coalition of people, certainly starting with the Lower Elwha Column tribe, who were committed to seeing those salmon populations return. Yeah. Jessica, I just want to note for people that I've seen these pictures of the salmon, the king salmon that you're talking about. And I grew up fishing from the age of three on Lake Michigan, fishing for salmon. And these salmon are of mythical proportions. Um, to me, when I saw them, they looked almost the size of a full-grown person, almost in some instances. Absolutely. Right? We're talking about 100-pound fish. And that yeah. is a really hard thing to conceptualize as someone who mm -hmm. has enjoyed and seen many salmon here in contemporary time. And the stories about these huge fish abound. In fact, I can tell you a few quick ones. Um, I've conducted many, many interviews on the Elwha River, and some of the memories of salmon, of course, come from uh, memories passed down by members of the Lower Elwha Column tribe. In one um, tribal member, Rachel Hageman recounted to me a story of her grandmother, who would describe having to take several steps back and forth as she dressed a fish. I mean, that's mm. how big the yeah. fish was. <laughs> Another uh, younger woman who I um, interviewed for a follow-up film describes 
her grandmother being instructed with other kids to try to drag a single fish, one fish in a gunny sack back to their home, you know, uh, just a few, uh, you know, hundred feet from the river's edge and describing how hard it was for, for a group of young people to move a single fish. That's how big they were. Apparently it's been a very long time since fish of that size have been caught in the Elwha river. Mm -hmm. Um, their numbers declined precipitously after the dams were put in, but the remaining fish also are nowhere near that mythical size. Mm-hmm. Wow. So so I remember in um, one of our conversations, or it might, might have been a public conversation, y- you had described a little bit of your personal history on the Yangtze River that um, is sort of tied to your, the way, maybe the way that you shaped the narrative around this. Is that right? Or, you know, please. So it, it is true that my experience in China in my 20s planted a seed for what w- would become a decade-long project on the Elwha River. And one major reason for that is that I had the opportunity at the time as a teacher to go down the Yangtze River with a group of with students, with young people. And during that time, the Three Gorges Dam, which is still the biggest dam on earth, was under construction. And so there are countless images that I will never forget about that journey. But as we took this, you know, huge overburdened ferry from Chongqing to Wuhan, essentially we were passing landscapes and villages and places that were slated for imminent inundation. And so what that meant is that everywhere this ferry stopped, and it was a big public ferry, at every little town, you could actually see red lines painted on the landscape, sometimes on buildings, sometimes on temples, on schools, Mm -hmm. everywhere there were these red lines. And of course, you can imagine what those red lines represented. They were the future inundation level of the reservoir that was going to be filled behind the Three Gorges Dam. And I haven't been back on that stretch of the river since that trip. It is something that I can tell you I will never forget as long as I live. I can still mm-hmm. picture those villages and those you know vibrant mm-hmm. riverside uh, communities that are now all underwater. And it made me very curious about and concerned about the impact of um, damming these large rivers. And then at the end of that trip, as planned, I actually had the experience of visiting with students the construction site of the Three Gorges Dam. And we were assigned to official tour guide who told us all of the many positive things that were expected to come out of the dam. And there certainly were. It's still an enormous source of hydropower in the region. But our guide fell silent when we asked some of the harder questions about the communities that were impacted, about some of the potential environmental concerns that many had raised about a project of that scale. And I think one of the things that stays with me too is that the look on her face conveyed more than (laughs) in some ways Mm. the words that she was sharing could about those concerns. Mm. And that was true in other places that we stopped. I remembered that journey for years and years and years. And as as the conversation 
began to really heat up here on the Olympic Peninsula about the possibility of removing two dams, it occurred to me with almost a giddy excitement that I might get to witness the same process in reverse. We mm. don't often think about undoing the, the work of transforming ecosystems on that scale. It's pretty unusual for people to choose to take mm -hmm. down working infrastructure. And that's what happened mm -hmm. on the Elwha River. And the chance to see kind of natural history unfold in reverse was something remarkable for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the feeling in the movie for, for myself as a viewer is, oh my gosh, you know, the, the right thing is going to happen. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I mean, there's a lot of suspense and drama and tension in the movie. And I, you know, I don't want to walk people through the whole thing, but I mean, they know, they know the answer at the end. But I think one of the most powerful things in the movie is how you bring the river to life. I mean, so much so that my family decided, you know, let's go. Let's go live by that river because I think it has something to teach us. It, it became so alive for us. And we wanted to develop our own relationship to the river in a way, you know, that that felt sacred to us, really, on some level. Like, we, we got a lot of learning out of that. My, my son was, I think three or four years old the first time he watched it and it has had an impression with him and he has his own relationship and and paints pictures uh related to the Elwha River at this point so it's it's a gift to watch it well first I love that Rufina I'm so thrilled that you and your family made a choice to go and get to know this river and its valley and this landscape on your own terms I really uh it just it makes my heart sing to know that the film has had an impact like that on you and your family. I also mm -hmm. want to come back to something else you said, which is, you know, this is a case where the right thing happened. And it's true. The right thing did happen. But that was by no means a foregone conclusion. And one mm -hmm. thing I really want to acknowledge is that while it takes years to make a film, a feature-length documentary film about a story like this, it takes decades to make a successful advocacy mm. campaign work. And I mm. just want to acknowledge the many, many people who invested not just years, but decades in trying to speak mm. out for the Elwha, in making mm. at first the lonely case and eventually a celebrated and successful case for the removal of dams. And I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to document when the successful part of that story started to unfold. Yeah. But there were many decades before I was even here when members of the tribal community, environmental advocates, and others kept up a long and lonely campaign to try mm -hmm. to change the course of history on that river. And the fact that they succeeded, to me, still feels like something of a miracle. Yeah, yeah, I, and I I remember um, in watching the movie, I, I found it really heartbreaking the the separation um, that you witness as you watch the movie from indigenous peoples in the Lower Elwha from from their food source and their cultural, you know, anchor on some level, right? When we think about um, the comment from Mackenzie Grinnell in one of our earlier podcasts um, about his people being part of the landscape. Um, the the Lower Elwha is considered one of the sisters of the Three Sisters tribes. And I, I think to myself, that had to be like getting your heart ripped out. 
you know, just um, having that happen. And then the kinds of incidents that would happen with the arrests of of people for fishing or what, whatever, you know, some of which looked like colonization in action. We we have to watch with a open mind to to really see the nuances of the story that you're telling. I think it is so well done. And and for someone like me who came from the Midwest um, and first saw this movie, it, it kind of is an entry point to understanding what happened to the nine tribes on the Olympic Peninsula in different ways. So, you know, I appreciate that the educator in you kind of gave us that piece to kind of begin that inquiry. Well, thank you. And I also just want to say I in no way claim to speak for uh, the tribal communities here on the Olympic Peninsula. I feel very honored to have spent years learning from some of the members of the tribe here who have spoken for the Elwha River. But I, like you, am not originally from this community. I have lived on the Olympic Peninsula now for the better part of 20 years, and yet compared to some, I'm a complete newcomer. And I will say that one of the things I was really committed to in the making of the film was trying to reveal some of the history that is uncomfortable, as it should be, for all of us who are newcomers here. And one piece of that that I wish I had known more about earlier really concerned the fishing wars that took place in the Pacific Northwest over several decades that led up to the Bolt decision and the cruelty of the reality that tribal communities all over this region were essentially barred from fishing their usual and accustomed grounds, that they suffered arrest and worse Mm -hmm. for doing so. And I think that's a very important piece of the history of the, uh, well, of this whole story that really led me to include, you could say in some ways, like an environmental history component to the film. I didn't want to just focus on the, the moment of success. I wanted to also include this painful past. And as you highlighted, mm-hmm. salmon are absolutely at the heart of the food system here throughout the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. They're also at the heart of the culture of indigenous people Mm -hmm. throughout this region. You know, some people refer to this region of the Pacific Northwest as salmon nation. And um, Mm -hmm. through all those long years when fish were dwindling on the Elwha River, the lower Elwha Column tribe continued to honor salmon year after year, continued Mm -hmm. to have a a ceremony recognizing the return of the first salmon, even as their numbers dwindled. And they see salmon as relatives, as family members Mm. would be another way to put it. And I cannot imagine how painful it was to watch the salmon family suffer, which it did for a century. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And And what I find interesting and important is that some of those pieces of tension Um, around who fishes and where they get to fish. And with all the fishing restrictions here, sometimes we say that you need an app and a PhD to be able to know when and how you can fish in the Pacific Northwest. Like if if I had one wish, it would be that every single fisherman of whatever background would watch this movie to to sort of begin to understand that um, tension and, and to create space 
create space for, um, you know, the, the, the respect and the reverence given to, to the culture um, that originally really supported and honored the, the salmon population in this area. Exactly. I think reverence is the right word. And I, I think that it's hard for any of us who are relative newcomers to this area to understand the depth of the relationship that indigenous communities both had and continue to have in the present tense with salmon and how vital that relationship is when it comes to sustaining culture as well as just traditional life ways. And I also think it's you know it's important to acknowledge that the Bolt decision that occurred here back in the 70s was transformative in terms of restoring uh, the rights of tribes in the Pacific Northwest to be able to have a more fair percentage of the fish caught. I think is one of the you know interview subjects I point you know one of the interview subjects in my film was Bruce Brown who um, wrote a transformative book. Some people describe it as the um, silent spring of the Pacific Northwest called Mountain in the Clouds about what was happening to wild salmon populations in rivers throughout our region as the result of dams and habitat degradation and the like. And he pointed out that by the time the fishing wars occurred, a large reason for that was that really everyone all stakeholders were fighting over the scraps of what had been the most abundant resource available to all just a century earlier. And for all of the reasons that uh, we know, um, salmon have dwindled precipitously throughout the Pacific Northwest and continue to, um, even with the successful restoration of the Elwha River. And the result of that is that there's just a much smaller resource to go around. And that continues to be a dilemma. It continues to be a huge challenge. And the restoration of the Elwha is a success story and a bright spot against the backdrop of ongoing loss. And I think uh, although the Elwha is an incredibly hopeful story and it's such a joy to be able to share it, I also always want to be honest about the fact that wild salmon are in terrible trouble right now in our region. Mm -hmm. And we need more stories like the one that I bore witness to in the Elwha if we have a chance at sustaining this completely vital food source and cultural touchstone for our region. Mm -hmm. And and I have to say that, um, and I've been privileged to read some of your writing in process, and um, you've written about um, a journey that you you took with with students um, to the Elwha River at the early end of developing this concept for for your film, and I was really struck by some language you used in that writing to really describe the forest. Mm -hmm being part of the salmon, right? I had never really thought about our forests being fed by the salmon also. And, and that sort of holistic sense of a food system became apparent to me in your writing. And it was like a light bulb going off for me. And when we talk about, you know, terroir and the Tao food, that's like the perfect example of what that would mean in the specific, in the Pacific Northwest. Like, can, can you speak a little bit about that? And, and, you know, get get 
specific with your science and, you know, illuminate oh, us. Absolutely. <laughs> I would be thrilled to talk about salmon forests. And I feel like this is such a beautiful example of some of the circular relationships that occur in ecology that aren't necessarily immediately visible, yet that underpin what a sustained, you know, what a sustainable and healthy ecosystem looks like. And one of the great joys for me of following this story has been learning the science more deeply. So in a nutshell, um, for those who are unfamiliar with wild salmon, wild salmon have one of the most unusual life cycles on earth. You know, they begin life in a freshwater stream, sometimes hundreds and hundreds of miles inland. They grow to little fry or to smaller fish in this stream, and then they migrate out to the ocean where they get much, much bigger consuming ocean you know, food sources. And to use a more scientific term, that means they are consuming marine-derived nutrients, which are different from what's available in the landscape where they are born. Many species spend years at sea, and then eventually, through one of the most, you know, mysterious natural cycles that I know uh, in the animal world, they return to the stream of their birth. They leave the sea, they work their way back up river, sometimes back up tiny tributaries, and they go there to spawn and die and start another generation of salmon. Now, when they do that, and historically they did it in enormous numbers, not only are they starting a new generation of fish where they spawn in these freshwater streams, their carcasses are also delivering an enormous amount of fertilizer to terrestrial ecosystems. And in places where fertilizer can be scant, especially in some of these kind of steep mountain valleys, the return of salmon literally feeds the trees. Now, how do we know this? How did scientists prove this? They were able to look at isotopes of certain nutrients that are unique to the ocean system. So it's possible to recognize whether it is nitrogen or some other nutrients that actually um, have a slightly heavier signature that come out of ocean waters and really can only appear if they have somehow come to the marine nutrient system. So in the last couple of decades, scientists have figured out how to, for example, look at the tissue of trees and other plants and actually identify that signature, show that there is nitrogen in the, in the needles or in the mm. material of the tree that somehow is directly brought from the ocean. Well, that somehow, mm. there's really just one way. It's salmon. And not only are the salmon dying after they spawn on the banks of these streams and rivers all over the Pacific Northwest, of course, salmon are consumed by countless other animals and species. A big player in that system is bears. And so when a bear eats a salmon, especially when salmon are abundant, a bear might just eat the parts it most prefers, drag the carcass into the forest another couple hundred feet or more, and then leave the bits that the bear doesn't want to consume. And so then mm. the bear is playing a role in further distributing this fertilizer source. Mm. To me, recognizing how this circular life cycle of salmon also feeds the forest itself was such a 
beautiful process to be able to mm-hmm. better understand and to also try to reveal in some follow-up films. I've done some follow-up films where focused on science where we've used animation to help tell that story. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, those trees that are fertilized by the presence of salmon carcasses actually help to nurture the young salmon when they're born because one of the you know many habitat challenges that salmon face is that they need very cool water and so in places where the streams are shaded by the large you know old growth trees that we have in some of our more pristine valleys those are better habitat streams for salmon so in essence the salmon are literally feeding the trees that are shading their young who go start a new cycle it's so beautiful. And I have to say that I marvel at how well you tell that story too, you know, that scientific story that gives us, you know, both an understanding of the the technical know-how that explains the magic of all of it. Um, so thank you for that explanation. And I, I think to myself, you know, how would the world change when I think about um, a reimagined home economics curriculum that might bring into it this understanding of, you know, what happens with salmon. Like maybe you'll eat that from, from the supermarket, but maybe you could also understand how it exists in nature in different places and understand the science of it and the importance of it um, and the cultural significance of it. I think that would be amazing. You're an educator, so I don't I don't really know. Like, you know, I always ask this question of people uh, who are guests on the podcast. What would you want to contribute into this, you know, reimagined home economics curriculum that might teach empathy and awareness? Well, that's a great question. And I feel very fortunate that I have had some follow-up opportunities after making my first feature film, Return of the River, about the undamming of the Alawa. I've had some opportunities to work for some science media organizations to do storytelling that's really more focused on the science components of the story. And I'm grateful to be able to do that because the story that we were trying to tell in the feature had so many cultural threads that while we touched on the science, I wasn't able to go into it in great depth. So being able to communicate those science stories in ways that people can understand, that's one thing that I do love being able to do. It gives me great joy to get to know some of the scientists who work on these topics. And I feel that the power of film, among other things, is to be able to make the invisible visible. That's true in writing as well. And I love those opportunities to be able to take a cycle that might be hard to see and and make it visible to people. But that's just perhaps one piece of of the work that I do that I hope to contribute. I think more broadly, you know, over this whole journey on the Elwa and beyond doing environmental filmmaking, at the end of the day, I want to be part of healing the relationship between people in the natural world and food systems, as Mm -hmm. you have uh, honed in on, are just, that's one critical piece of that relationship. And looking at food Mm -hmm. systems in a more holistic way, I'm I'm very grateful for the work you do, Rufina, in that regard. From my perspective, telling these kind of stories, what I see is that there's such power in the local and that the work I do, whether it's in writing or in film, has so often focused on this very intimate relationship between 
people and communities and the natural world. And if I can help people and communities think about that relationship in new ways or raise questions or even talk about it, that to me is a powerful way to contribute. And it's what I love about what I do. I live here on the Olympic Peninsula because I wanted to raise my own daughter um, close to land and waters that I love and that are meaningful to me. And I wanted her to have a relationship with land and with place. And she does, you know, she's, she's uh, certainly more at home, you know, hiking in the Olympic mountains than say on a subway. (laughs) (laughs) It's beautiful. Yeah. So broadly as a storyteller, I hope to be part of changing the narrative that, or narratives rather, that have been, I fear, destructive to our relationship with the planet. I I feel like we need all new narratives in the age of the Anthropocene, which I basically interpret as a time in which everywhere on earth is impacted by us, by people. And you know, I, I go to a lot of wildlife film festivals and uh, environmental film festivals, and there are still p- plenty of stories out there that sort of purport to show pure wildlife films, animals in the wilderness. And I actually feel like that's a bit of a misleading concept at this time, because even mm-hmm. in places where people don't reside, we are having an impact. And mm-hmm. I also... I also am concerned that sometimes we don't see ourselves as part of those systems. I'm interested in in narratives where we can see ourselves as part of the natural world that we inhabit. And I feel like this whole story on the Elwa was a wonderful opportunity to focus on that in enormous depth. But I'm going to continue to tell stories and look for ways to, to help reveal that relationship and show us, show people as part of the landscape that we call home with the potential, the potential to have a positive impact. Certainly not the foregone conclusion, as we said earlier, but the opportunity to have a positive impact. And and I I think that's also one of the pieces that comes across in in the feature that there's an opportunity for a viewer to start to do some critical thinking on one's own choices in in the process of relating to the natural environment. And I, I think it's it's a formative experience to to watch that film. I, I want to let people know how can they find your other films that have followed on the heels of that in different ways? Do they go to your website? Sure, or? yeah. Um, there are a variety of different ways. First of all, the feature is available on Amazon Prime. That's where it is uh, for streaming online right now. One of the follow-up pieces that I had the pleasure of making about two uh, scientists, two women who work for the Lower Elwha Column Tribe, that one was initially released as part of a series on Nautilus Magazine, as part of a series called Think Like a Scientist. And it's free and easy to find by Googling. Um, The series was Think Like a Scientist, and the title was Renewal. And then there also are many other clips on my own website, which is Plum Productions, Plum with a B, like a plumb line, uh, dot com. And 
they're all pretty easy to find. Um, Renewal has been shared, the short piece I just referred to has been shared quite widely and it's kind of still on a film festival tour with a couple of uh, different uh, festival outlets with the Wild and Scenic Festival and also with the um, Jackson Hole uh, Wildlife Film Festival, which does a great job of doing education as well. Both of those festivals are festivals with a big education wing, I would say. And um, it also appeared recently in, uh, actually referring back to our recent conversation about the forest, there was a kind of a joint venture with the UN to celebrate forests and community relationship mm-hmm. to forests that featured some films and renewal because it talked about the salmon forest concept in part was part of that celebration as well. And although I don't have the link on top of my mind, the UN's celebration of forests would also still be hosting the film. Oh, great. Well, hopefully I can include these different links within the description of the podcast. That would be wonderful. Very easy to find. I really, I I was thrilled to go back and um, make that short in particular because of the opportunity to tell the story of the Salmon Forest, but more simply also because it was a chance to feature an up-and-coming young scientist from the Lower Elwha Column tribe Mm -hmm. named Cameron Messias. Mm -hmm. And one of the great pleasures of working with her on a film was letting her speak about how she incorporates both her science training. She's in the process of getting a PhD right now in wildlife biology and her heritage and how she views this whole story and how she views her work. And I'm just so grateful to be able to share the perspective of Cameron and others like her. Wow. And and that to me is such a um, testament to the beautiful nature you have inside you, because that that is the healing process in itself to be able to amplify that storytelling, too. You know, I I think about um, the land that we're on. We're just, you know, fortunate to be here and and recognize that there's, you know, attention in, in, you know, me just even broadcasting from from these lands of the Sklallam tribe. And there's just a lot of gratitude in my heart for it and, and a hope, you know, that we can continue to honor the place and honor the, the, the treasures of it. And I do think that you are, as a person, a treasure to this community um, because of the kind of work that you do um, and the kind of art you create. Um, so so I, I, I want to just give you an opportunity to, to talk about anything else as a creator you know, I think there's this creative genius that can be inspiring to other creators who are out there. And when you talk about it being a decade long process, my goodness, what a commitment. Um, and, you know, what's the level of persistence um, that it requires and focus even on how to shape the story that you might want to talk about if, if, you, if you want to? Sure. Well, first of all, gratitude is a good uh, place to start. I mean, I feel incredibly fortunate that I have found ways, and I won't say it has been easy, but that I have found ways to tell stories about the places that I love and to make a life here. I mean, I'm in some ways the rarest of birds or an oxymoron. I'm I'm basically a a rural filmmaker and um, there aren't that many of us. And I can definitely recount plenty of Zoom calls over recent years where people kind of look at me from 
much more typical centers of media production and say, wait, where are you? What are you doing there? <laughs> um, well, I, I'm trying to make a life in a place that I love. And at the same time, use the tools that I've learned to tell meaningful stories and, and stories that not only I care about, but that will somehow make a difference. And how do I do that? Honestly, persistence in some ways is the most critical tool. I feel so grateful that um, of the many different things I've had the opportunity to work on over my life, that the Elwa has been my longest running project. Uh, it has been about a decade now. And one of the things that I want to highlight, in fact, is that we are approaching the 10-year mark of the initiation of dam removal on the lower Elwa Dam. Um, that first blow of the jackhammers and bulldozers occurred in September of 2011. I cannot believe we are approaching mm -hmm. that milestone. Wow. In terms of how I do what I do, you know, one of the things that I've been really fortunate with and with that story is that because I live reasonably close by, I've had the time to do what I think is critical for any storytelling project with the depth that I've tried to achieve on the Elwa. And that is just to take time to build relationships. And that is a luxury that we don't always have as documentary filmmakers. Um, certainly there are plenty of times when documentary filmmakers are asked to or choose to kind of parachute into a story. That's not how I like to work, if I can possibly avoid it. And um, in terms of how that played out on the Elwa, I mean, that was an independent film project. So I was raising money the whole time over years and years and years oh, to, to attempt to right. make it work. And all of the initial work on that was completely unfunded for both myself. And I want to do a shout out to my colleague on this project, John Gusman, who also put in years of his life of um, essentially volunteer um, cinematography in wow. the Valley. I did not um, know that. Oh yeah. Both of us did, both of us worked on it as a labor of love literally for mm -hmm. years. But the upside of that, you know, challenging journey in some ways is that it gave us both time to really get to know the people at the heart of the story, as well as the landscape. John, I think, excels at um, visually telling the story of landscape. He's happiest when he's by himself on the river with his camera. And it was wonderful to have you know, an ally like that, um, out there from the very beginning, he really started filming in 2010. Mm -hmm. I really focused on trying to build connections over time with many different groups of people and individuals. I went to the lower Elwa Kalalum tribe multiple times over the course of six months before I ever showed up with a camera. And I think that mm -hmm. shows in the film um, I think it helped. Mm -hmm. um, I know that there's been an enormous amount of pressure on tribal member and others to tell this story because it did receive global attention, especially as the dam started to come down in 2011. And I recognize and honor the fact that media fatigue became real for some people in it. I think mm -hmm. having longstanding relationships put the project that I was you know, undertaking with uh, myself and John Gusman and others into kind of a, a different place for people. And I was so grateful that, you know, many people who I think 
we're kind of done doing those one-off interviews. We're willing to just keep working with us, to stay in touch with us. Additionally, um, I spent a lot of time getting to know um, people on all sides of the issue in Port Angeles. And certainly there were still uh, detractors of the project um, when we began. I definitely wanted to hear their voices as well and made time first to get to know people, then to interview them. I have a memory of meeting up with one subject who, uh, when we'd first spoken on the phone, had said rather gruffly, well, I don't know, and I don't know what your take is on this. We might not get along, but I'm willing to meet you. And, you know, many long walks on the river later, I'm, I'm you know, grateful to call this person a friend. And mm-hmm. I learned a lot about the challenges facing early settlers on the Elwha as well from those mm-hmm. walks. <laughs> And I also tried to understand how the process unfolded uh, in uh, small and scrappy environmental groups who were the first to have the courage to take up the, the story. And so all of that said, I recognize as a storyteller, it's a luxury to have time to do mm-hmm. deep and thoughtful research. And that's not always how it works and in my process and in many projects. And it's a trade-off in a way of doing an independently uh, funded project where we knew we couldn't ever, you know, bill every hour, nor will we as long as we live. Mm -hmm. But I Mm -hmm. was glad to take that time on that story. And it really shaped Mm -hmm. how I think about doing stories where there are deep and divisive different perspectives on a natural resource Mm -hmm. or a place. I am continuing to focus on stories of that ilk. I'm in pre-production now on two different projects that, um, I, although I can't, I don't have the capacity to go into detail on those uh, because I'm working with other people that uh, you know aren't ready to share the nature of the project. But there are other Pacific Northwest stories that also essentially look at land or places or waterways from a range of different perspectives. And one of the things I recognized really early on in my many, many trips to Port Angeles and the Elwha River is that the people I spoke to weren't necessarily seeing or experiencing the same river, that it was many different rivers to different people. And you know, there were some people for whom it was an emblem of economic growth and resource extraction and the efforts to develop the North Olympic Peninsula. And there were others for whom it was a source of life or a spiritual relationship. And that it was quite normal for these different perspectives to exist on a, you know, around a single place. And a lot of that project was about trying to truly listen to the different perspectives Mm -hmm. and without taking sides. Am I happy the dams were removed? Absolutely. You know, was I rooting for that outcome? Mm -hmm. Yes, I was. But I made a really conscious choice early in that film that is different, I think, from some environmental filmmaking projects. I really did not want to frame it around a villain. And um, mm-hmm. in early test screenings of the project, that actually was problematic for some people. You know, I think one of the challenges for doing the kind of work I do is that good stories thrive on conflict. You know, conflict mm-hmm. drives storytelling. 
I understand that. And at the same time, as I said earlier, I am so weary of some of the familiar tropes, especially around how we talk about environmental dilemmas. And so I found myself in these test screenings explaining again and again that I wasn't trying to frame the you know early dam builder a hundred years ago as the villain of the story, not in a contemporary story. And when pressed, I eventually tumbled to the, you know, to an answer that made sense to me. Like who, who's the bad guy? Who's the villain of this story? And I realized eventually that the bad guy was actually fear of change. And mm. that as this story deepened and as the divides became more complex in a, you know, small community with a long history of resource extraction and very fraught relationships between a tribal community and non-tribal members of the community. I realized that to show this story in full, that I needed to hear both sides and that I wanted to frame the challenge not around one individual villain, but instead around a human trait over which we actually have some power. And that is mm -hmm. our potential fear of change. And the way I experienced those interviews was actually that unlikely alliances started to emerge. There were unlikely hero, heroes or champions of the project that became those voices because they were open-minded and willing mm -hmm. to change their minds. You know, one person who comes to mind is, uh, you know, somebody who represented the mill that used the power from these aging hydroelectric dams. And I think so, to, to everyone's surprise, he became an unlikely advocate for unloading the dams, for selling them to the federal government, and for changing the mill's relationship to the river. And those conversations from the, the filmmaking process really stand out in my mind, because what I wanted to understand at the end of the day was really how that change happens. And when I ask mm -hmm. how change happens, mm -hmm. I'm talking about on every level. And in the case of the Elwha River, to use that example, Change happened all the way up to the federal level. It took an act of Congress to bring those mm -hmm. dams down, but it also took change happening at the community level. And for change to happen at the community level, it had to happen even at this very personal, very individual mm -hmm. level. And the interviews that most moved me were the ones where that change was revealed. And mm -hmm. there were many of them. And so the other thing I would say about my filmmaking process is I really sought those people out. And mm -hmm. in the case of this specific story, I knew that there was a citizens advisory committee that had been formed at some point and that they had had kind of a pivotal role in communicating to the community what the path forward might be. And when that Citizens Advisory Committee was originally convened, actually by some members of Congress, there was a widespread assumption that the Citizens Advisory Committee, made up of mostly people from Port Angeles, would come out against dam removal, which was how one of the senators felt at that time. And to, I think, the complete surprise of almost everyone involved, 
members of that committee changed their mind. And eventually they came up with a unanimous recommendation to proceed with the idea of dam removal. Well, that fascinated me. I wasn't even on the Olympic Peninsula when that happened. It had occurred decades earlier. So one by one, I tracked down the people who'd been in the room. Mm. Some of them are no longer with us, sadly. But I managed to find many of those who are still with us. And it led to kind of a pivotal scene in the film where some of those folks really shared how they found themselves seeing it differently simply by Mm -hmm. what, you know, a good community process looks like by hearing different stakeholders. That, that part of the movie, the way you interweave those interviews and commentaries from that committee, I, as, as someone who's worked in organizational change um, and leadership development, it is such a striking example of how change can happen successfully and how people bring each other along and how they develop and evolve through the empowerment that happens when you have the information you need to make an informed decision. And and so for me, that's sort of the, the triumph that sort of blasts through, you know, the the latter half of the the feature um, in, in ways that really make you want to go out and be an activist of some sort, you know? So there's, there's an inspiring piece to that for me. Wow. Well, Jessica, is it? I have to acknowledge that, you know, I recognize that mediation is less sexy on screen than conflict. (laughs) Yet mediation and community process are these vital tools to accomplishing the type of outcome that we saw in the Elwa. And I just want to acknowledge that I, I come from a family of mediators. Both my mother and my brother make their living doing this type of community mediated process. My brother with a focus on environmental projects. And in some ways, wow. allowing the film to, to tell that story is a love letter to the potential of mediated community community process of that type. It's also more simply a love letter to the Olympic Peninsula. And I, I really hope that mm. comes through in every frame because I have mm. come to care so deeply about this place that I call home. And even knowing what I know now about how hard it is to produce an independent documentary film, I, I don't recommend starting your first from a small town uh, on the corner of the continent, but... <laughs> Even knowing all that, I would do it all over again in a heartbeat because Mm. following that story has been one of the most satisfying things I've done in my life. It was an absolute journey of love. And um, Mm. I hope that comes through in what people see. It, It definitely does. And if I could just say to anyone listening, there's an incredible gift of both solitude and majesty in every frame for me as I, as I watched it a number of times. And even if you have never lived here, you will be able to connect with that feeling. And, and that approach to the environment with eyes of wonder, that, that part I think is one of the greatest legacies your, your film gives to anyone from any background. So I just want to say thank you again, Jessica, for being a guest on Food Love, 
the space between terroir and the Tao of food. Well, thank you so much, Rufina, for including me. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. And I encourage all of your listeners to bring those eyes of wonder to whatever place they call home. And may it give you joy as well. Thank you.